Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today as we together study the Come Follow Me lesson for September 21st through 27th. And this week we will be discussing 3rd Nephi chapters 12 through 16. Well, not much as far as my uh, personal uh, situation goes. I will be heading back to Hong Kong in a few weeks, although I'm not exactly sure and I haven't booked my tickets yet. But uh, fortunately, I've been in the U.S. long enough. I think it's time I need to be uh, heading back for work reasons. Uh, Hong Kong situation, as far as I know, is uh, largely stabilized um, in terms of uh, the virus. They've got it largely under control. They, Though they continue to remain much more cautious than uh, we in the U.S. generally tend to be, uh, and they still have limitations that prevent uh, gatherings such as church gatherings. Uh, unfortunately, I do know a lot of people uh, who, especially members of the branch uh, back home in Hong Kong, who have decided to to leave Hong Kong. I think that's, uh, you know, coronavirus likely has something to do with it, but I think it's more concerned about uh, the future of Hong Kong, especially as the PRC government, uh, will say, tightens its control of Hong Kong and makes it more and more like the PRC in terms of uh, uh, in terms of regulation, in terms of laws, in terms of the way that it is governed. So, uh, you know, in my mind, it's it's kind of a very sad thing to see uh, someone who's lived in Hong Kong for more than ten years uh, to see that it's really fundamentally changing, but, you know, change is an inevitable part of life. And so as Hong Kong becomes something other than uh, what it used to be and what I'm used to of it, uh, it'll certainly have advantages for Hong Kong, but certainly there'll be uh, unfortunate changes that come about as well. And one of those is it seems at least that, uh, you know, a number of expat families that uh, enjoyed living in Hong Kong, have made the decision that it is uh, time to move on. But obviously my family is generally one of those as well, even though uh, I will have to continue to spend uh, a decent amount of time in Hong Kong going forward for work reasons. Well, to our lesson. Uh, Last week's lesson, we ended with the Savior emphasizing that his gospel... Uh, which again is that everyone must repent and believe in Christ and come unto him through the ordinance of baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. We talked about how that was basically his gospel. And anything more or less than this uh, was was not his gospel. Uh, certainly there's things that can be uh, added to that gospel uh, in terms of Uh, things that are intended to help us come unto Christ. And and we in the church certainly have a number of those things. Uh, We believe that those things that are added are are inspired and are of God, uh, whether it be word of wisdom, Sabbath observance, visit, uh, you know, the the ministering assignments, uh, callings, attending church, etc. All of the things that in many ways keep us uh, busy as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Those things are intended to keep us closer to Christ, to keep us, uh, to, to further and deepen and strengthen that relationship, those ties that we have uh, with him. But again, fundamentally though, his gospel is simple. It is faith in him unto repentance, leading to baptism. And so with that, after giving that very basic explanation of what the gospel is, and again, this is a Christ who uh, has come to this people that endured uh, enormous destruction and tragedy uh, among the places that they lived and among their societies, uh, you know, days of darkness, uh, this mist of darkness. It was more than actual absence of light, but it was... 
it was it was it was stronger than that in in some ways that are hard for me to to admit hard for me to comprehend um it was a darkness that you could feel that you couldn't even light a a fire or light a light uh it's within these circumstances that you know several days later we don't know exactly how long uh Christ appears unto these people and begin to teaches and begins to teach them uh his gospel and calls them to repentance and we we know the aftermath of these events and these chapters that we'll be studying over the next few weeks is that they had several hundred years of peace and harmony uh so clearly the effects of the teachings that we're studying here are incredibly powerful and if we will study them and if we will become familiar with them and take them and implement them into our lives we too can the promises we too can enjoy that same peace that the nephites uh enjoyed uh within the americas following Christ's visit to them so let's get into studying uh what it is Christ taught so again last week we studied he he taught them his gospel and he told them the importance of baptism This week as we move on to chapters 12 through 16 interestingly we get the sermon on the mount and it is 90% identical to the rec- uh, to the record of the sermon on the mount that we find in the New Testament. Uh now this gives some people some uh trouble or concern why would Christ or why why would the book of Mormon a ancient record so it claims to be <clears throat> that was recorded by an ancient prophet in the Americas obviously he would have had no access to uh whatever Matthew or whoever was uh recording in the in the old world in Jerusalem how is it that the language in these two can be identical and is that not evidence that the book of mormon is not an ancient creation but rather a modern uh creation trying to be an ancient uh record and that's not necessarily the case certainly it is possible one explanation that joseph smith or whoever you would claim is the author of the book of mormon stole you know wrote things out of whole cloth just made them up and here he thought oh all this will be a great idea i'll just take you know several chapters of the bible and just stuff them in here. Well, I mean, I think one <laughs> argument against that is that, you know, he's this is already 400 pages into the book of Mormon. Clearly, whoever is writing this, if they're making this up, has already become pretty good uh at making things up and making this story up and they certainly this book is long enough it didn't need a few filler chapters uh dropped in copy plainly. uh from the New Testament Bible that we have. And so if someone was actually trying to, you know, trick people into believing that this is an ancient text, the last thing they would do is to take three chapters from the Bible and just copy and paste them in there. That would obviously be a sign that this is fraudulent. Uh so, you know, I, I the argument that, you know, Joseph Smith just needed a few extra chapters and so he copy and pasted them in in order to provide filler material i think is just absolutely silly and ridiculous um and of course it doesn't at all explain the other 450 pages within the book of mormon that are not uh in any way similar to what's in the bible um so i think that argument really in my mind doesn't carry uh, a lot of water so how did this get here why is it the same language well we don't know exactly but joseph smith as he was translating as the language was in some instances given to him and as he became more familiar uh with the translation process he certainly had uh you know he was the one that was writing this down and so he had the ability to uh or, or at least in some ways the the freedom as we understand to provide the language that was either you know given to him as it you know appeared on the stone or as it appeared in his mind during the translation process he delivered it to use language that he was familiar with or the language that appeared to him or that was given to him would have been 
language that he was familiar with. And so this is, as far as I understand, simply a result of the translation process that, uh, you know, reasonably so, the Sermon on the Mount that the Savior gave uh, in Jerusalem was also similar to the Sermon on the Mount that he gave in the New World. So essentially he gave the same sermon to two different people uh, using almost the exact same language. Now, of course, he didn't use the King James English language while he was delivering the Sermon on the Mount in Jerusalem. And he didn't use the King James Version English as he was giving the same sermon to the people in Americas. You know, he was using Hebrew in one and he was using whatever language they spoke in the Americas in the other. So in both cases, what you and I are studying, whether it's in the Matthew 5 through 7 account or whether it's in Third Nephi 12 through 14 accounts, that's not the original language in any instance. Um, and so to get upset because, you know, we're reading the English translations of both that seem to be similar, um, in my mind kind of seems a little bit silly, something that we probably don't need to be uh, too especially concerned about. Uh, but we'll also see, and there is a, a theory out there, that uh, perhaps there are some elaborations in here. Uh, in the third Nephi accounts that we don't know could have been more than what the Savior actually said. But the Lord wanted this account in here, as we'll see, because the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, as it was recorded in the New Testament, and then essentially you know, dropped or put in here or given to the Nephites, uh, that echoes through the later chapters throughout the rest of Third Nephi. Um, and interestingly, this uh, theory, which I find to be very, very interesting, um, shows that, well, this theory, I became aware of this theory uh, from listening to a podcast uh, by an individual. Uh, the podcast is titled Radio Free Mormon. Um, interesting, this individual has in many ways moved on from the church. He no longer believes in uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or at least the Orthodox uh, understanding of the church and the belief practices of the church. But what, what this individual discovered uh, in the Book of Mormon is so interesting and so compelling that it gives him pause and, and really leaves him with, uh, you know, in awe as to, if nothing else, the complexity of the Book of Mormon. And the idea that Joseph Smith would be able to, uh, you know, copy and paste, as the theory by antis go, copy and paste uh, chapters from the New Testament, and then use those teachings from the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament and wind them into the later chapters uh, within Third Nephi. And I'll show you examples of this as we get here. Is a, a, a very complex and elaborate literary device that it is highly unlikely that someone as uneducated as Joseph Smith or really anyone in that time would be able to give. And certainly as we understand the translation process that Joseph would be able to dictate that off the top of his head, winding these Sermon on the Mount chapters with the teachings that come later in 3 Nephi is highly unlikely. Uh, that would have showed a level of, of, of brilliance and genius within Joseph Smith that would be simply unbelievable. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a number of different explanations as to how this language got here. Um, again, my feeling is we don't need to be too especially concerned with that. There's several reasonable explanations as to why this language is here. Whether or not it was uh, elaborated on behalf for the benefit of the readers of the Book of Mormon in our days so that we can tie it back to, uh, intentionally tie it back to the New Testament, or whether the Savior actually gave them the exact same teachings and the translated versions uh, out of familiar, you know, out of uh, concerned and, and wanting to make sure that we were familiar with the language and therefore the, the translated English uh, that, that the Lord gave or, or Joseph Smith gave uh, was inspired to be nearly identical to the Matthew version. Um, it doesn't matter. There's, there's reasonable explanations uh, as to why it is there. And you, we certainly do not have to 
take the conclusion that you know Joseph Smith just got lazy and so he copy and pasted uh, several different chapters into Third Nephi here. And as we'll see as we go through these chapters, and actually it's not my intention to uh, go through them blow by blow because one, there's so many good teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. We could spend hours uh, discussing them. But two, this is teachings that we're all very, very familiar with. And so uh, I, I, I personally don't think it's necessarily uh, interesting. Um, no, it, it could be. I could give you know several you know, lectures on the teachings in here, but, but it would go on for too long. And there's enough other ways to approach this material that I don't, and I'm not going to go blow by blow, verse by verse, as I, as I often do discussing things that I find the most interesting. I'm actually going to be focusing on those things within these chapters that are unique and that are different uh, from the Matthew, from the New Testament accounts. Uh, so with that, let's turn to uh, chapter 12. And interestingly, before we get into this uh, Sermon on the Mount, or Sermon on the, on the Temple Mount, as it is here in Bountiful, as we know they were gathered together uh, at the temple. And now, of course, uh, we, we should take note that um, any time within the scriptures, as we see uh, refer, references to mountains or to mounts, uh, you know, lights should be going off and we should, we should be saying, hey, there's, there's something temple related here. Um, and no doubt the Sermon on the Mount is also, uh, in many ways, a temple text. Its intention is to take us uh, to provide a template, because that's what the temple means. The temple and the ordinances within the template, within the temple, are intended to be a template for our lives intended to be a template for how we go from this life and how we become you know, translated, how we leave this plane that we're on, this world that we're on, and prepare to return ourselves back to the presence of God. That's what the temple is. That's what it is. Its sole purpose is intended to be. Now, certainly there's many teachings here within the Sermon on the Mount, whether we're looking at the Matthew version or the Third Nephi version. Uh, that provides that template, that teaches us how we can you know, rise above the world and put ourselves in a situation where we are prepared to return back to, uh, to the presence of God. Uh, and so, long way of saying, uh, so whether it's the Sermon on the Mount, and the mountain is symbolic of the temple, or whether it's uh, this account in Third Nephi here, which is actually given at the temple. Uh, both of them are uh, templates as to how we leave the world behind, how we become better disciples and followers of Christ, how we can uh, live our lives in a way that prepares us to return back to the presence of God. And the Third Nephi account here in chapter 12, interestingly, starts with uh, essentially this hierarchy of blessedness, which I always find interesting, where verse 1, he basically says, you know, you're blessed after, you know, did you guys have seen me, uh, you've heard me talk, and if because of the things that I tell you, you decide to enter into covenants with me and receive the ordinance of baptism, uh, have faith in me and repent of your sins, uh, you are going to be blessed. But then in verse 2, uh, he, he gives, again, this hierarchy of blessedness where, you know, on level 1 is, you know, you've seen, you're an eyewitness to these things, and as a result, you choose to receive sacred ordinances. Uh, but then we have verse 2 in chapter 12. And again, more blessed are they who shall believe in your words, because that ye shall testify that ye have seen me, and that ye know that I am. Yea, blessed are they who shall believe in your words and come down into the depths of humility and be baptized, for they shall be visited with fire and with the Holy Ghost and shall receive a remission of their sins. So level one of this hierarchy of blessedness is those that are eyewitnesses of Christ and have seen these things. But even more blessed, according to this teaching, are those who hear the testimonies of the eyewitnesses. And as a result come unto Christ. And I think that's because of their humility. Uh, it takes a certain level of faith in God 
and humility to say, you know what, I haven't seen these things. I'm not an eyewitness to these things, but they make sense to me. But they resonate with my soul, but I can feel their truthfulness. And as a result, I am going to choose to follow them, even though I don't have the same personal experience with the Savior that those individuals do. Even though I'm not an eyewitness to these things, uh, I choose to exercise my faith based on the accounts of other people. And then obviously, as we choose to exercise our faith, we believe that that revelation will come and we will have our own personal experiences with the Savior. Probably not at the level that the, the individuals here at the Temple in Bountiful had in the Americas, but, uh, you know, so it's not going to be the Savior appearing to us and teaching to us necessarily, but we will receive the baptism of fire through the gift of the Holy Ghost, and we will receive that same confirmation as to their truthfulness. And that confirmation is the same way that those who see Christ know that his teachings are true. Just because, you know, it should be clear that just because you see Christ doesn't necessarily mean that you will have the Holy Ghost confirming his teachings to you if you're not worthy and ready and prepared to uh, receive that. We saw that in a few early, or a few chapters earlier as, though you, as they heard the voice of God the Father, but they didn't understand it because their hearts weren't prepared. Uh, so it seems that it's possible to personally see Christ, but not have the gift of the Holy Ghost uh, confirm that truthfulness to you. Um, so the important thing then in gaining our testimony and coming unto Christ and preparing ourselves to return to the presence of the Father is not that we see Christ, but rather we have the Holy Ghost bear testimony to, the, to us. And the Holy Ghost will attend either the personal witness of Christ or the testimony that is provided from those that have personally witnessed Christ. Either way is the same and the result is the same. But according to Christ here, we're more blessed if we have to exercise the faith to rely upon uh, the account, the third person accounts, so to say, the accounts of others who have had uh, those eyewitnesses. So before he gets into the Sermon on the Mount discourse, uh, he gives us this hierarchy of blessedness, um, whereas those who have seen Christ themselves are at the first level, and then those that rely upon uh, their accounts uh, appear to be at a higher level. Then we dive into this Sermon on the Mount. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to go through the verses that I find uh, are different than the King James Version and talk about some of those differences. Uh, I recognize that, in, again, in doing so, this does not give justice to the, to the beauty uh, that is the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the Sermon on the Mount, it should be emphasized, should not be studied in, you know, bite-sized, clip, clip by clip. These are not, you know... Uh, these are not intended to be individual sentences that were, were designed to study, um, <clears throat> uh, you, you know, bite by bite, clip by clip, thought by thought, but rather they all flow together into one sermon, into one discourse, and we have to place them in the context of each other. And again, I'm not going to do that, but I am going to uh, highlight some of the differences. And, and it starts with verse 3 uh, in Third Nephi uh, chapter 12. And so, uh, in verse 3, it states, Yea, blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the difference between the Matthew uh, 5 account is that here we have this additional language, who come unto me. So, there's no salvation in simply being poor in spirit, and simply being, uh, you know, concerned. for, for being humble, uh, for recognizing uh, your own limitations, or for desiring something more. Th- there's no salvation in that. The salvation comes from having those feelings and then leading, having those feelings lead you unto Christ. So it's, there's no salvation in being poor in spirit unless you come unto Christ. And the third Nephi account emphasizes that, whereas the Matthew account simply says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Third Nephi makes it clear. It's only the poor in spirit who come unto Christ, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, uh, from that, we uh, let's look at verse 6. 
And blessed are all they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. And the difference here is that it is clear that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled with the Holy Ghost, not just that they will be filled. Uh, now, again, there's, there's strong imagery with the idea of being hunger, hungry or, or thirsting. Clearly, when we're hunger, hungry, uh, we want to be filled. When we're thirsty, we want something to fill us. But what is it that will fill us as we hunger and thirst after righteousness? This third Nephi account makes it clear that we will be filled with the Holy Ghost. That is what comes. And that is what provides uh, the nourishment, provides the satisfaction uh, that allows us to no longer be hungry, to no longer be thirsty. It is the Holy Ghost that comes and fills us. And so that is what we should be seeking after. If we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we shouldn't necessarily be seeking after, after knowledge or different uh, philosophies. Certainly shouldn't be after, seeking after the things of the world if we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. We should be seeking for the Holy Ghost. And Christ makes it clear in these verses earlier that the Holy Ghost only comes as we have faith in him, as we repent, as we are baptized, and then we receive uh, the baptism of fire or the gift of the Holy Ghost. Okay, from there we jump to uh, chapter, uh, still in chapter 12, verse 18. For verily I say unto you, one jot nor tittle hath not passed away from the law, but in me it hath all been fulfilled. And the difference here is that Christ is now using the past tense uh, to describe the fulfillment of the law. When in the Sermon on the Mount, he was using a, a future tense when he says one uh, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. So clearly between the time that he gave the Sermon on the Mount in Jerusalem and the time that he is giving this similar sermon, something has happened uh, in order to fulfill the law. And of course, what has happened was the atonement of Jesus Christ came to uh, completion with his uh, you know, with, 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 his, uh, with, with the events of uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, with his crucifixion on the cross, and the subsequent uh, resurrection. As that atonement was fulfilled, the law has been fulfilled. And not one jot or tittle, uh, you know, which is, which is uh, as I understand them, are different marks uh, within Hebrew writing, uh, you know, one jot nor tittle hath not passed hath not passed away from the law. Those are all still there. The law is still uh, the law is still the law. We don't need to change the law, but we need to recognize that that law of Moses has already been fulfilled. And so our focus is not on the law of Moses anymore, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ, because His atonement uh, ended up fulfilling the law. And from there, we continue then in verses 19 and 20. Uh, and these are actually quite different from the uh, King James uh, accounts in, in Matthew 5. It says, And behold, I have given you the law and the commandments of my Father, that ye shall believe in me, and that ye shall repent of your sins and come unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Behold, ye have the commandments before you, and the law is fulfilled. Therefore come unto me and be ye saved. For verily I say unto you that except ye shall keep my commandments, which I have commanded you at this time, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the, the, the similar King James Version, uh, language in the King James Version, uh, talks about the importance of, of teaching others to repent of their sins. Uh, it doesn't mention the idea of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Um, and it basically says you need to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, so, so clearly there Christ was concerned that the people not get caught up in the law of Moses and in those prescribing uh, the law of Moses or the keepers of the law of Moses within their society. But here he is more concerned with our own personal level. And it's not a matter of how we do things in relation to others or in relation to society. But the question now 
the focus now is our own hearts. Are we coming unto Christ with a broken heart and a contrite spirit? And we talked about what that means uh, last week, but essentially it's giving our whole souls to Christ, uh, giving up control to him, letting him uh, take the lead within every aspect of our lives. And the way we do that is we, we keep the commandments. We stop rebelling. We stop comparing ourselves to others. We stop worrying about how others are keeping the commandments, whether it's the scribes or Pharisees, or whether it's our neighbor, or whether it's our, our spouse or our children. We don't worry about them. We worry about ourselves. We take care of our own. And as we do that, as we turn that focus outward to inward, uh, then we are uh, giving that broken heart and that contrite spirit, and we are doing what the Savior here uh, commands us to do. So again, these verses 19 and 20 and 3 Nephi 12 are, are, are very different uh, than their counterparts in uh, the, the Matthew 5 account. And then verses uh, 23 and 24, uh, which are also very different. In fact, these don't even appear in the Matthew account. Uh, 3 Nephi 12, 23 and 24. Therefore, if ye shall come unto me or shall desire to come unto me, and rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, go thy way unto thy brother and first be reconciled to thy brother and then come unto me with full purpose of heart and I will receive you. Uh, this is an elaboration on uh, the teachings within the Matthew 5 account. Uh, but I love in verse 23 how it emphasizes, If ye shall come unto me, or shall desire to come unto me. Uh, you know, these Christ teachings apply from the moment that we start exercising our faith. Even if we haven't yet come unto him. And when that exact moment, you know, when is the time that we have come unto Christ? You know, there's different possible explanations. You could say it's at the time that we are baptized. You could say it's the time that we have received certain ordinances of the temple. You could say it's the time that we have been converted unto Christ or we confess our sins to him. There's several different times. But the focus is that whether or not we have actually come unto him or whether we have a desire to come unto him. Uh, the admonition is the same, uh, especially as it relates to others. Uh, we need to uh, seek forgiveness uh, from those that we have offended. And we need to be first reconciled unto others before we can be reconciled unto God, unto Christ. Uh, which I think is a powerful teaching. We can't come unto Christ if our relationship with others is not the way it's supposed to be. Um, and that should be a dire warning uh, unto us. If we are offending others, if we have done things to, uh, to hurt other people, and people are hurting because of us, we have to fix those before we can even come unto Jesus Christ who, of course, is always standing there, arms wide open, ready to receive us. But step one in coming unto him, well, it's not necessarily step one, but one of the critical steps in coming unto him is that we are first reconciled with those that we have wronged. And certainly that takes a, a great level of humility because it requires us to admit that we've made mistakes, that we have done wrong. Uh, but it is given here by the Savior as a critical step that we each have to undergo before we can come unto Jesus Christ. Uh, next is verse uh, 26. Um, verily, verily, I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence until thou hast paid the uttermost senine. And while ye are in prison, can ye pay even one senine? Verily, verily, I say unto you, nay. So this actually ties into the discussion we just had about being reconciled unto others. And in both instances, Christ says, you know, if you can try to come unto me, but if you have problems with your brothers, if you've done things that you shouldn't have done and you end up, you know, in prison because of that, how are you going to come unto me? And it's interesting that within these two verses, uh, you know, paying attention to deta details, here he uses the term senine, which was... 
you know, an actual Nephite coinage uh, that we know about from different places uh, from earlier uh, versus in the Book of Mormon. Whereas in the New Testament account, he uses farthing. Uh, so, you know, the coinage is different. But I think even more interestingly, here he adds the sentence, and while ye are in prison, can ye even pay one senine? In other words, and there's great spiritual uh, lesson from this idea here. If we are in the wrong, if we have done wrong and we have not repented of that, if we are still suffering the consequences from the wrong that we have committed, how can we come unto Christ? How can we move forward? That is why it is critical that we first be reconciled with others, that we first repent of the mistakes that we've made. Because while we are subject to the consequences of those mistakes, while we are, because of the ways in which we've hurt others, or because of the wrong things that we've done, because of that, we are lacking the spirit or we are spending our time trying to cover our previous mistakes, or, you know, for whatever reason, suffering the consequences of the mistakes that we've made and refusing to confront those consequences, refusing to make the changes necessary, while we're in that situation, we cannot come unto Christ. It's impossible. We cannot progress. So step one in coming unto Christ, after we exercise faith in him and have that desire to come unto him, is always going to be repentance. It's always going to be fixing the mistakes that we've made in the past. Because if we don't, those mistakes will prevent us from coming unto Christ. The consequences of our previous actions will make it impossible for us to completely come unto the Savior. So we have to constantly be exercising repentance. We have to be humble. We have to be improving ourselves. uh, And we have to be constantly evaluating the things that we have done in an attempt to move on from their consequences. Verses 27 through 30. Behold, it is written by them of old time that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. Behold, I give unto you a commandment that ye suffer none of these things to enter your hearts. For it is better that ye should deny yourself of these things wherein ye take ye will take up your cross than that ye should be cast into hell. The King James Version here talks about, you know, famously, you know, if your hand offends you, cut it off and be whole. Um, whereas the Savior here doesn't, doesn't talk about uh, doing that. He simply instructs us to deny ourselves of these things. Um, so in some ways, the third Nephi account, uh, as it relates to uh, having pure thoughts, is in some ways more difficult because the Savior says, you know, if you're having, if different parts of you are not pure, cut them off and get rid of them and move on. And But the Savior here says, you know, just don't do it. Uh, deny these things. Uh, do not suffer that they even enter into your heart, which I find to be in some ways troubling because <laughs> I certainly have impure thoughts. And I can understand the idea that once these thoughts come in, I should get rid of them. I can get that. But the Savior tells us here, don't even let these things enter into your hearts. This seems to be a much more challenging standard for each of us. Clearly, it's, it's better to not have these things enter into our hearts. Uh, but that can be difficult to control can be impossible to control sometimes, but this is the standard that he gives us here uh, in the third Nephi account, and clearly uh, it is a very, very high standard. Uh, And this high standard ties to verse 48, which is uh, the last one we'll talk about in chapter 12, where he says, Therefore I would that ye should be perfect even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Of course, here Christ famously added, uh, in or, you know, separating it from the uh, Matthew 5 account, even as I or your Father in heaven is, is perfect. Whereas in the Matthew account, he just says, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So clearly between the time that he gave the Sermon on the Mount account and the third Nephi account, something has happened. And we all know what that something is. It is the atonement. It is his death. It is his resurrection. 
where now he qualifies to be our example of somebody that is perfect, that we are commanded to be like. And so we are now given the admonition to follow perfectly the Savior's perfect example so that we can be like him, so that we can come unto him. And again, remember that this is a a, a temple account. This provides a template, the things in here that we've talked about um, and the things in here that hopefully you're reading on your own and not simply, you know, relying on my overview of a few verses that uh, express a difference. Um, You know, these ideas that we're so familiar with from the Sermon on the Mount, these ideas are intended to bring us closer to Christ, to bring us unto Christ, that we can be perfected in him in the same way that he is perfect, in the same way that our Father uh, in heaven is perfect as well. Now, uh, chapter 13 now, as we move on from chapter 12, is nearly identical uh, to uh, the Matthew chapter 6 account. One of the differences, though, is that uh, as the Savior turns to uh, and begins to teach about how we should take no thought for for clothes or for food, but to consider the lilies of the field, it's clear in this account that those teachings were directed to the twelve that he had called. Uh, It's very explicit in here how the Savior, you know, turned from the main body to which he had given chapter 12, uh, you know, everything that we just covered, as well as the beginning of chapter 13, he turns then to the twelve and those ideas about not worrying where your food or where your clothes or basically the things of the world, he, he tells them that those teachings are given to the 12. It is very clear in the third Nephi account that, that that is the case, whereas we don't have that in the Matthew account. Uh, and then as we turn to chapter 14, it is also nearly identical to the Matthew uh, 7 account. Except for chapter 14, he now turns back to the masses and is giving them uh, this teaching. So for a few verses, he turns to the 12 and teaches them and tells them not to be worried about the things of the world, that they're out doing the Savior's work. And so just as the Savior takes care of the lilies of the field or the birds of the air, he will take care of them. He then turns back to the crowd. So I think it's clear from, from that to us that Now, unless you are in the full-time service of Heavenly Father, you do not need to, uh, we we do need to worry about the things of the world to a degree because we have the realities, we have the challenges of the world confronting us. And there's something noble about that, uh, you know, about going to work every day, uh, about providing for your family, about being responsible, uh, about taking care of your own. There's something noble and godlike Uh, and empowering about that process. Uh, And so it is clear that we are not, you know, again, unless we have a specific calling in which we can uh, rely upon uh, the resources of the Lord's church, uh, the rest of us do have to worry about uh, taking care of our lives. We do have to worry about where our food comes from and where our clothing comes from and where our children's food and clothing comes from and how we put a roof above our heads. Those are realities that we need to be concerned with. Uh, So in chapter 14, then, uh, there are a few verses that that I do want to go through uh, quickly because I think they are so important, even though they do uh, appear essentially verbatim uh, in the Matthew account. I think in the context of uh, the Book of Mormon, uh, they they are very interesting. Uh, And that's in chapter 14, uh, starting in verses 13 through 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way which leadeth to destruction, and many there be who go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So again, if this is a temple text or a template for how we return to God, here he tells us, don't be surprised if the way back to God, if the way that you get back there is not broad, is not wide, and is not widely known or certainly not widely accepted. Uh, you know, truth and salvation is not democratically determined. But Christ gives it to us. And it is a narrow gate. 
it is straight. Uh, it is difficult to, to get through. It's not wide enough. It's not intended to let everyone and every idea and every philosophy through this gate. Rather, it is only those that stick to and adhere to the teachings of Jesus Christ that are able to fit through this straight and narrow gate. And certainly we should be grateful that we have the Book of Mormon to the extent that it helps us focus and brings us to the center uh, of that straight and narrow gate and helps us and prepares us so that we can enter therein and that we can return to the presence of the Father. Uh, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come unto, to come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, fruit but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. So, whether or not there are prophets, Christ clearly tells us, yes, there are going to be prophets, but not all of them are going to be legitimate prophets. There are going to be false prophets. And how are you able to distinguish the false prophets from the true prophets? By their fruits. And of course, as we uh, reflect upon the way the term fruits are used within the Book of Mormon, we think back to the Tree of Life, where the fruit on the Tree of Life was the love of God. So a true prophet will always bring us will always convey the love of God, will give us that peace, will give us that understanding, will help us deepen our relationship to God, bringing us to Christ and preparing us to return back to our heavenly parents. That is what a true prophet will always do. A false prophet will be teaching something else. A false prophet will be leading us in a different direction, not back to the love of God. Their fruits will lead us in ways uh, otherwise. Um, and so we need to be aware of that. We need to watch out for their fruits. We need to always be questioning, is this bringing me back to, to God? Is this bringing me closer to Jesus Christ? And if it is not bringing us closer to Christ, we can be certain that that is a false prophet. 21 through 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Uh, I, heard, I went to a fireside with Elder Holland once when he uh, in, in which he referred to these as the most terrifying verses in all of Scripture. And that there will be many who do miracles and prophesy in the name of Jesus Christ, who are actually doing iniquity. And when they come unto the Savior, the Savior will say, I'm sorry, I don't know you. I do not recognize you. You were work, workers of iniquity. And again, I think it gets back to the same concept that we just spoke about. It's by their fruits ye shall know them, and the fruits should be those that draw us unto Jesus Christ. The love of God should be the fruit of any true prophet. And if there's someone out there doing works or prophesying or you know, doing whatever outward works, those don't matter. It doesn't matter what incredible things they're doing, even if they're doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. The question is and always will be, are they bringing us closer to Christ? Are they helping us deepen our relationship with him? And if they are, if they're bringing us closer to Christ, we can know that their fruits are good. We can know that they are true prophets. If they're doing something else, even if it, what they're doing seems to be incredible and exciting and miraculous, that's not a sign that someone's a prophet. A true prophet, we know from their works, from their fruits, their fruits are the love of God, and they help us to feel that love, drawing us closer to God.
And so with that, we move on to chapter 15. And, uh, and within 15 and 16, I just want to highlight a, a few verses that illustrate uh, what I was talking about earlier in the ways that uh, the sermons that we have in these three chapters that we just covered, uh, chapters 12 through 14, uh, get played out or get carried into the chapters that follow. Let me show you what I mean by that. Uh, starting in 3 Nephi 15, let's read verses 2 and 3. And it came to pass that when Jesus had said these words, he perceived that there were some among them who marveled and wondered what he would concerning the law of Moses. For they understood not the saying that old things had passed away and that all things had become new. And he said unto them, Marvel not that I said unto you that old things had passed away and that all things had become new. Well, clearly this is an elaboration on what we had in uh, chapter 12, verse 47, where he, has, where he said, old things are done away and all things have become new. And this is a good place to start because we'll see in some ways what really happens in the rest of the third Nephi account is that he takes these few chapters, uh, chapters 12 through 14, which again are 90, 95% the exact same as Matthews 5 through 7, and he elaborates on them. So in, in some ways, the remaining chapters within 3 Nephi are expansions or explanations of what he means and what he taught during the Sermon on the Mount. And so I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that you know, it, it's possible that the Sermon on the Mount, maybe the Savior didn't even give that, but that's just put in there for context for us as latter-day readers so that we will understand that what he's doing here is he's elaborating on uh, the Sermon on the Mount, on what we are familiar with, the New Testament version. Now, that's not my personal view. I actually don't believe that. I believe that he did come down and he give, did give them a similar sermon. I think Actually, the context makes that quite clear, uh, but you know, re regardless of whether it was a copy and paste job so that we as modern readers would have uh, a context that we otherwise would not, or whether or not he actually came and you know, orally delivered that sermon to them, uh, one of the takeaways from this and tying these uh, the, the chapters 12 through 14 with the later chapters is this shows an incredible complexity within the text itself. One that it is highly unlikely from my point of view uh, that Joseph himself would have come up with or any of his contemporaries would have come up with. Uh, but rather it shows a complexity within the text that, that I think is beautiful and that is striking. And that in some ways is you know an evidence that the Book of Mormon is authentic or at least it certainly was not uh, written by an uneducated, you know, 20-something-year-old uh, in upstate New York because of this complexity uh, which is there. So we have chapter, uh, verses 2 and 3 in chapter 15 elaborating on the idea that uh, old things are done away and all things have become new. Let's continue then in uh, chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Behold, I say unto you that the law is fulfilled that was given unto Moses. Behold, I am he that gave the law. I am he who, who covenanted with my people Israel. Therefore, the law in me is fulfilled, for I have come to fulfill the law. Therefore, it hath an end. And this elaborates on the verse we talked about earlier, where he said, One jot nor tittle hath not passed away from the law, but in me it hath all been fulfilled. So the Savior here elaborates as to why it is that the law of Moses has been fulfilled. How is that possible? Well, here he says, I'm the one that gave the law. It is my law. And I'm the one that covenanted with Israel under this law. This law is all about me, says the Savior. Therefore, it is fulfilled in me. That's the reason I have, am able to fulfill it, because I'm the one that gave it. It is my law. And so, since I'm the one that gave it, you can trust me when I tell you the law has been fulfilled in me. And so what I'm about to teach you, the Savior says, about my atonement, about repentance, about a broken heart and a contrite spirit, you can trust that. You don't need to rely on the law of Moses because I'm the one that gave the law of Moses. So you can trust me. 
And that's, you know, a beautiful elaboration and explanation as to what he earlier taught about having, about the law having been fulfilled. Continue in verse 6, Behold, I do not destroy the prophets, for as many as have not been fulfilled in me, verily I say unto you, shall all be fulfilled. And this ties back to chapter 12, verse 17, when he said, Think think not that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Again, elaborating and further expanding upon this idea that he fulfills the law of Moses. And if there's anything that has not yet been fulfilled, anything that the prophets, that true prophets prophesied of that has not yet been fulfilled, that will be fulfilled. We don't need to worry about that. It's going to happen. You can trust him that those things will be fulfilled. Uh, Verses 9 through 10. Behold, I am the law and the light. Look unto me and endure to the end, and ye shall live. For unto him that endureth to the end will I give eternal life. Behold, I have given unto you the commandments. Therefore, keep my commandments. And this is the law and the prophets, for they truly testified of me. And now this one ties back to those verses that we uh, discussed earlier in which he says that uh, he has given us the law and he expects us to come unto him with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And except you keep the commandments, you cannot be saved in the kingdom. These verses 9 and 10 in chapter 15 elaborate and further expound upon those ideas as he teaches this, that he is the law and he is the light. And if we look unto him and we endure to the end, we shall live and we will have eternal life if we look unto him and if we endure to the end. And so he has given us commandments. He is the light. He gave us the original law. Now he's giving us a newer law. He's giving us a higher law, but he's doing so from a higher position himself, having gone through the atoning process, having made the atonement possible and available to all of us. We now no longer look to the law of Moses as a source of coming unto Christ, we are to come unto Christ ourselves by offering up a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And so just as the law of Moses was designed to bring them unto Christ, Christ has now come to fulfill the law of Moses, and Christ now brings us back to the presence of the Father. And so that is the elaboration that we need to understand as we recognize that this is given at the temple, that this is a temple text The law of Moses was designed to bring people unto Jesus Christ. Christ has come to fulfill that law of Moses. And so now we no longer use the law of Moses to come unto Christ. Rather, we use the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we come unto Christ and as we follow his law, Christ brings us back to the Father. Christ takes us by the hand and leads us back to the presence of our heavenly parents. And that is what the temple is all about. That is what this, that is why this is a template for how we should be living our lives because our whole purpose in existence is to come to this earth, to gain experiences, to repent, and to grow in ways that we couldn't grow in the presence of the Father. But we're not stuck here forever. We are to come unto Christ and he will lead us back to the presence of the Father. He is the law. He is the light that we now look to. And so we have to endure to the end with faith in him, holding fast to the covenants that we have entered into. And he leads us back to the presence of the Father. Still in chapter 15, verse 12. Ye are my disciples, and ye are a light unto this people, who are a remnant of the house of Joseph. And that elaborates on chapter 12, verse 15 that, uh, or sorry, verse 14, where he said, Verily I say unto you, I give unto you to be a light of of this people. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. So here we have these Nephites who are commanded to be a light unto the world. And we know that's eventually being, that's in the process of being fulfilled right here in our days because their example, their records, their testimonies that they left behind here in the Book of Mormon are a light unto the Gentiles, unto the rest of the world, unto everyone that is willing to recognize it, that they had testimonies, that they knew of Jesus Christ, that they had entered into covenants with him, that they were the Lord's covenant people. 
and their light and their testimony shines to the rest of the world. So this is an elaboration of the admonition that was given in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as both in Matthew 5 as here, uh, as it uh, specifically applied to the Nephites in uh, 3rd Nephi chapter 12. Uh, And then in chapter 16, uh, I just quickly want to uh, go through verses 1 through 3 because there's so many interesting questions here. Uh, Chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. And verily, verily, I say unto you that I have other sheep which are not of this land, neither the land of Jerusalem, neither in any parts of that land round about whither I have been to minister. For they of whom I speak are they who have not as yet heard my voice, neither have I at any time manifested myself unto them. But I have received a commandment of the Father that I shall go unto them, and that they shall hear my voice and shall be numbered among my sheep, that there may be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore, I go to show myself unto them. I have so many questions about these verses. Uh, You know, this comes after Christ has just explained to them that I told people in Jerusalem about you. They didn't understand. But here I am telling you that I told them. But in addition to you people here in the Americas, and in addition to the people in Jerusalem where I actually spent my mortal life, there are other places that I will go to and that will hear my voice. I'm curious, where are those other places? Where is the record of those voices? I believe that one day we will know that. Will it be one day in the immediate future? I have no idea. Uh, But, you know, I look forward to the day in which we have the fullness of the records of many other places within the earth and their testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, as someone whose uh, life is, you know, integrally uh, connected to the beautiful people of China and, and Asia more generally, uh, you know, certainly within my own creative uh, mind, I think, gosh, wouldn't that be neat if there was a record somewhere of Christ having come to his uh, sons and daughters in China entering into covenants with them, teaching them the gospel, um, and preparing them, giving them the similar instructions for them to return to the presence of the Father. We obviously don't have that record, uh, but it's my faith that there's something somewhere, whether it's in China or somewhere else, we just don't know. But here I am speculating, but but here uh, Christ was pretty explicit. There are other people that I'm going to visit, and they will hear my voice. Unfortunately, we don't have all those details yet, Um, But, you know, in some ways that's exciting that uh, we have the hope that those details will eventually come. Um, One final verse in chapter 16. Let's go with verse 15. Uh, And then here he's talking about the, the Gentiles. But if they will not turn unto me and hearken unto my voice, I will suffer them. Yea, I will suffer my people, O house of Israel, that they shall go through among them and shall tread them down, and they shall be a salt that hath lost its savor, which is hence, thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of my people, O house of Israel. And of course, this ties back to uh, chapter 12 and 3rd Nephi, verse 13, where he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I give unto you to be the salt of the earth. And if the salt shall lose its savor, wherewith shall the earth be salted? The salt shall be thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. So again, I think this is another good example of how throughout the rest of 3rd Nephi, Christ will continue to elaborate on the teachings that are given to us in chapters 12 through 14. Here, the famous salt, if it's lost its savor, what is it good for but to be trodden down? And, you know, this ends with the warning to us as the Gentiles that if we lose our savor, if we lose those characteristics that make us salt, which is, of course, a preserving agent that makes it possible for Christ to preserve his covenants. If we lose those elements within us, if we lose, if we fail to hold on to those covenants and hold fast to those things that Christ has given unto us, we are in risk. We are in danger of losing our savor and losing the blessings that we have. And of course, if that happens, and here is prophesied that it would happen to the Gentiles, of course, uh, through the apostasy and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ, 
is a part of that process because the Gentiles did lose their saltiness. They lost their savor. But we as individuals need to be on guard as our, our, ourselves. We need to make sure that we are holding fast to our covenants. We need to make sure that we are studying and understanding and going in depth to the teachings that the Savior provided here because they are a template as to how we return to Jesus Christ. Our lives are busy. The world is in chaos right now. We have a hundred million things, different, go different things going on in our lives, and it's easy to be distracted. But how grateful I am that we have the Sermon on the Mount, both in the, Old the New Testament and here again delivered to us in the Book of Mormon, because I believe that it is a template. It is a temple text that teaches us how we return to the presence of the Father. Because at the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters. And of course, the path that leads us back to the presence of the Father is straight and it is narrow, but it is Jesus Christ. It is exercising faith in him. It is repenting of our sins. It is giving him, coming unto him with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, giving our whole souls unto him, exercising faith in him, trusting that he is the way that leads us back to the Father. And I hope that we will all develop and maintain that trust and that faith in him. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.